1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have, have, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All all wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. Evening everybody, my name's Phil, if we've not met, I'm one of the ministers here. I hope that you'll be uh, able to stay around afterwards. It'll be lovely to get to know you over some of our unhealthy nibbles. Let's pray and then we'll look at this last section of 1 John together and you'll find you've got an outline on your service sheet for taking notes and to show you where we're, where we're heading. Father God, we thank you for your life-giving word. We thank you that your word builds assurance and confidence and so we pray that we would know that if we are in Christ we are eternally secure. Amen. What do you do um, when the Bible says things that just well they're difficult that you don't like things that if you do them they're going to cost you money or popularity convenience effort Stuff that will mean not doing things you really, really, really want to do. What do you do when the Bible says things like that? What do you do when it seems to put a barrier between you and something you've really longed for? The danger is at that moment we're all tempted to do a couple of things. The first is to reject what the Bible says. The second is to reinterpret it. Does it sure it really quite means that which is actually the same thing both involve replacing what God has said with what I think he really would have said if he knew certain things or if the translators had just got it right what has that got to do with 1 John well in this final passage we see what it is that we risk losing if we take that approach to the Bible if we approach our Christian faith with a willingness to, well, just nibble around the edges if we're not quite comfortable with the things Jesus says. The willingness just to sit in judgment over some of the, you know, not the central things, but on some of the things in the Bible. I'm just not sure we need to be so strong on that, do we? John tells us that a real Jesus of the Bible grounded faith 
gives us eternal life and a perfect relationship with God the Father. And that if we turn away from the Jesus of the Bible and the things that he says, for a, well, a Christianity of Jesus who says slightly less inconvenient things, we're not just lowering the demands of Christianity, we are entirely losing all of its blessings as well. Let's see uh, what I mean by that. As we see the blessings that are yours by right if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. So firstly, in Christ we have confidence to pray to God. So verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is why John has put pen to paper or quill to parchment. Uh, We've seen this again and again. He wants to give assurance to those who trust in Jesus Christ that their faith will bring them eternal life. He wants to encourage them to keep going and not to give up. It's actually interesting, just um, for a moment, to see the uh, the parallel passage at the end of John's Gospel. You just see the development in, in John's thinking, um, which is uh, it should appear on a slide in a second. So at the end of John's Gospel, his eyewitness account of the life of Jesus on the right, he, he wrote, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The end of his letter, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he wrote the gospel to convince you if you're not, you know, if you're looking into these things, you're not really encountered Jesus. No, you can put your trust in him. But that is not enough. John doesn't want you just to put your trust in Jesus and to be saved. John wants you to have assurance. That's why he wrote this letter. He says, look, I know you now trust in Jesus Christ. You've been baptized. You're part of a church. You read the Bible. You pray. That's wonderful. I want you to know, to know with certainty, with confidence, which will take you through life, that you are one of God's children and that you will be with him in eternity. And so he wrote this letter to to build on the themes that he developed in the gospel. And in this final section, he shows one of the most profound implications of assurance of our confidence before God. And it is the confidence to come before God in prayer. We've already read these words together. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. This is the first thing he teaches us. In Christ, we have confidence to pray to God. If you trust in Christ, you don't need a ritual or a priest, or a sacrifice to be welcome before God, to come to talk to him. Jesus is the sacrifice, Jesus is the priest, and your own ordinary language is the only ritual you need. Come as a child, that's the call of the Bible, come as a child and cry out to your heavenly father for the things you desperately need. What a wonderful, wonderful privilege. But, for a number of us, there is a nagging problem in this verse. There's that little phrase in the middle that kind of ruins the whole thing. The according to his will. Come to God and he will answer all your prayers. Asterisk. Terms and conditions apply. (laughs) Yeah, that feels like a bit of a cop-out to us, doesn't it? 
It feels like it ruins the whole thing. Okay, well, what's the point? <laughs> Great, you can come to God, but it'll only answer if it's in accordance with his will. But when we think like that, we're actually missing the entire point that John is making. You see, when we think like that, we're acting like the greatest thing would be to get whatever I want. But God loves us far, far too much to give us everything we ask for. He's not going to let us ruin our lives like that. He always answers our prayers. Always, always answers every prayer. His timing may not be our timing. And his answer may not be what we expect or what we demand, but he always answers. And here's the thing. He always gives you, when you pray, the things that you and I would ask for if we knew everything that God knows. But John's point is not uh, that the greatest thing about prayer is I can get stuff. He's clear. It's got to be within the will of God. John's point here is the greatest thing about prayer is who we get to pray to. It is the confidence to approach God and know that he hears us. When we pray, we bring our needs, our desires, our wants before the almighty God of the universe. Through Christ Jesus, you have perfect access to God the Father. Um, About a year and a half ago, uh, I had problems with a technology company which shares its name with a common fruit. Uh, Let's leave it at that. And uh, I got bounced around for literally the best part of a year between uh, various advisors, customer reps, escalation teams and brand ambassadors um, who are the people you really don't want to speak to. And at the end, at the end of a year of uh, frustrating phone calls and failed promises, they just, they genuinely turned around and said, there is nothing we can do. It doesn't work. It should do. It doesn't. We do hope you'll buy more of our products in the future. Um, I, have to, you know, I have to say, it was a rather disappointing year in uh, realising uh, what the state of my heart is like. Um, I probably would be slightly relieved that none of the people I spoke to on the phone at one or two points in that year are here tonight. Um, but the interesting thing was that the, about uh, a month and a half after everything had just been closed down, uh, a friend, I was talking to a friend, and they, uh, and they sent me a link which had the direct email address of the managing director for Europe of this technology company. So I sent an email. Within an hour, I got a reply from his PA. Within a day, his personal uh, kind of SAS tech team were on the phone, and within about a week and a half, everything was sorted. It was great. Moral of the story, get the direct line. But the moral of the story is that if you were a Christian, you never, ever, ever get bounced around heaven's customer complaints department. Your prayer is really important to us. Please hold. You you never get to deal with an off-site call center when you pray. When you pray, if you're a Christian, you always, immediately, every time, have direct access to the God of the universe. He hears every word that you and I say when we pray. Every single word. That's the privilege we have in prayer. See, prayer is not a a duty we tick off, I know I should start the day in prayer. Prayer is not a sort of Christian ritual that you have to do, otherwise God will be a bit annoyed with you. 
prayer is the unimaginable privilege that you and I can start our day talking to the God of the universe, unburdening our hearts before him, seeking his help with the things that worry us. If you trust in Jesus Christ, John says, that's the assurance you have. That God, his father, is your father. And that what concerns you matters enough to him that he will always hear. What a wonderful, wonderful promise that is. In Christ, we have confidence to pray to God. And now uh, he talks about a particular sort of prayer. As he tells us that only in Christ do we have confidence of forgiveness from God. Now, these are another couple of verses, there have been a few in one, John, let's face it, that might have us scratching our heads a little on the first read. And what he's doing is he's applying um, the confidence in prayer to a particular sort of prayer, prayer for the forgiveness of someone who's caught in sin. Verse 16, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Hmm. Okay, remember what he's already explicitly taught in chapters 1 and 2. Turn over to page 1225. Chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. 1225. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There are no caveats there, no hint in chapters 1 or 2 that, oh, yeah, there are some sins this doesn't apply to. In fact, the only time when the New Testament talks about um, sins that can't be forgiven, it does seem to be talking about the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. The sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. And I think that's what's going on here. Jesus is the only one who brings forgiveness And therefore, the only thing you can't be forgiven is to reject the only source of forgiveness. That's the headline. So verse 16, if a brother or sister is tangled up in sin, pray for them. It's what we should do if we're a loving church family. And you can be confident that God will give them life. That is uh, eternal life, that they won't fall away and be cast away on judgment day. God will bring them safely home in the end. But the second half of verse 16 Don't bother asking God to forgive someone who's turned away from Jesus. Don't bother. Like the group who have left the church. The very reason John's written this letter, this group that's left the church and said, no, 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 we have a different understanding of God and Jesus. He says, don't bother praying for their forgiveness because they've rejected the only one who can forgive, that is Jesus. The sin that does not lead to death is any sin except the rejection of Jesus. You can be forgiven sexual sin. You can be forgiven violent anger. You can be forgiven greed. You can be forgiven racism. You can be forgiven lack of love for others. You can be forgiven even murder. Jesus' death on the cross is enough for any of those. He suffered on the cross to pay for all of those. 
And so all of us can breathe a sigh of relief. However, the death of Jesus is the only way that sins can be forgiven. He is the only one who has died to pay for sin. And so if we ignore the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, there is no hope. Imagine this. Uh, one of, imagine one of our, we have a number of uh, fantastic research doctors um, in the house. And imagine one of them came up with a cure for cancer. That would be nice um, if you could. Um, it would be a wonderful thing to do. Um, We've got a professor, get a Nobel Prize, I think, if that happened. Um, so imagine one of, the, one of the doctors here came up with a cure for cancer. Pink pill, just take it every day, and cancer gone, completely gone. Be wonderful. Anyone who comes to them and asks, pleads, prays, please will you cure me, they prescribe the pills, and they're fine. Take these pink pills, one a day, rest of your life, and you're cured. But imagine you've got a family member who has cancer and you want to see them cured. But they will only take herbal remedies. They won't take anything other than herbal remedies. Refuses to take anything else. Is there any point pleading with this doctor on behalf of this friend saying, please will you see them and please will you help them? They won't take your pill, but please can you help them? There's nothing the doctor can do. The prayer, well, it's, it's useless. Because the only way to be cured is to take the pill. God the Father is the doctor. Jesus Christ is the only pill that cures from sin. He's the only one who's taken our punishment. The only hope for forgiveness and eternal life is in him. Now, to be clear, I don't think John wants to stop us from praying for friends, who loved ones who, like many of us here will know, who seem to be going well um, as Christians and then have rejected Christianity. Gosh, does this mean I shouldn't pray for them? I shouldn't pray for their forgiveness? I don't think he's saying that. He's just speaking in the way that Jesus often does, an extreme, um, black and white, deliberately harsh terms to try and teach us a particular truth so Jesus says at one point unless you hate your father and your mother you can't follow me but he does say at another point that you are worse than an unbeliever um, if he says uh, you, you you mustn't uh, neglect your parents even to give to church he's a uh, he's you know he's there's a there's a nuance but he's trying to teach them at that point you've got to put Jesus first and John is trying to teach us look there is no salvation except if you trust in Jesus forgiveness for for sin See, he's not trying to say you should never pray for people that they'll come to a clear mind and return to Jesus Christ. He's just saying, look, you need to realize this is serious. It's not a, well, you know, they've got their own idea about Jesus. Uh, We should, you know, pray that God will forgive them. Um, You know, the same way he forgives everybody else. No, no, no. There is only one Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of history, and he is the only one who saves. So there is no hope outside of him. That's his point. Only in Christ do we have confidence of forgiveness from God. And now thinking about forgiveness for sins leads John to his last point, to finish the letter with a glorious statement of Christian confidence in this letter of assurance. So thirdly, we know we have forgiveness, life, and God if we have Christ. We know we have forgiveness, life, and God in Christ. 
This glorious statement is uh, grounded in three we knows. We know, we know, to help us understand that he wants us to be confident of what we believe in. And if you are here tonight and you trust in Jesus Christ, these are true for you. You can say, we know, I know. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. This is not a challenge that Christians must not sin. We shouldn't, but that's not the point here. This is a promise that God will not let sin have the last word on our lives. Um, the word anyone born of, um, when he says continue to sin, that's the stress. In other words, he's saying you won't live in sin all the way down to hell. That's his point. I think for many of us, the Christian life, it does feel like we're thrashing around in the water, trying to keep our head above the surface. And our sins are like great heavy chains wrapped around us that keep dragging us down. And, and, we, and we feel like we're floundering and we worry that, that they're just going to drag us all the way down. But John promises, ultimately, eternally, Jesus will keep you safe. Sin will not have the last word on your life. Jesus did not die on a cross just to see you lost forever. He will stop you from drowning and one day he will break off the last of those chains and you'll be free from the presence of sin for all eternity. And in the meantime, all of us who trust in Christ can sing as we've done this evening. He will hold me fast. We know he will hold me fast. Secondly, verse 19. We know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. If you trust in Christ, you are a child of God. These are very un-PC verses, aren't they? The world, though, is under control of the evil one, of Satan. If you brought guests tonight, you're probably wondering, why on earth didn't you read the passage before inviting them? But remember, this is not an ethical statement. What do I mean by that? He's not saying Christians are perfect and people out there, they're horrible, wicked. That's what the breakaway group The fake church has been teaching. John has made explicit, as we've already seen tonight, you cannot claim to be a Christian and claim to be without sin. Uh, Chapter 1 that we looked at a moment ago, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we claim we've not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now it's not an ethical statement saying Christians are better than people who are not yet Christians. It's an encouragement saying, look, The world is under the control of the evil one. Look at the news and you see that. But if you trust in Christ, then you're a child of God and he will look after his children. We're not under the control any longer of the devil who wants to destroy and kill and ruin. It's not an ethical comparison. It's an encouragement that you've been rescued And finally, gloriously, he returns to the objective grounds for our confidence. Verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know 
who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Okay, the son of God has come, he says. That is, Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. And he did it here on earth in front of witnesses. And he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. The same Jesus who lived, died, rose again in history has sent his Holy Spirit to enable the apostles to record those things accurately, truly in the Bible for us and to enable us to trust, to believe, to understand those words so that we can read this book and not just know about Jesus, some facts, but know him, relate to him personally. As my God, my saviour. And so he says, and we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. If you have Jesus Christ, you have God. There is nothing else you need. You have God, the true God, the one God. And everything that we can have of God is in Christ. So he concludes his letter. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Literally, be on guard like a soldier against idols. It's a military word. And it's a very odd way to end the letter because not once in the entire letter has he mentioned idolatry. Not once. What is going on? I mean, is is it like when you're leaving the house as a teenager and your mum's shouting final commands at you? Uh, Make sure you've got a warm jumper. Be home by 10. Have you done your homework? Don't forget your Oyster card. Just, you know, a whole heap of random commands as you leave the house. Actually, there's nothing random at all about his choice of ending. Idolatry is described in a number of ways in the Bible, but at its heart is worshipping a false god. Treating something as God That is not really God. That's idolatry. Acting like a fake thing is the real thing. Like a fake God is the real God. In the Bible, idols are cheap knockoffs of the real thing. Imagine you're in a a plane at 10,000 feet and it's on fire. It's not great. Um, And uh, and then somebody hands you one of these. Oh, great parachute that's just what I need you get to the door of the plane and the guy says hey, hey, hey that's that's not a parachute uh, that's drummer Pete's trendy rucksack <laughs> looks kind of like a parachute and he said no, no no that's not that's not a real parachute it's not it's not heavy enough and it's not got the right straps so yeah I like it though it's nicer than your parachute it's trendier it goes better with my outfit Now, standing at the door of a plane, on fire, 10,000 feet above the ground, what are you going to choose? The thing that's comfortable, that looks nice, that you'd like to have, or the real parachute? Which do you think is more likely to save your life? The idols that John is referring to are like this rucksack. They share some similarities with the real thing. Uh, They sort of look like God. People worship them. People pray to them. People create religious rituals for them. But they are not real. 
Okay, fine, so idols are bad. I shouldn't have an idol. But that doesn't explain why John mentions them in the last verse of this letter. But you see, the point is that there are other sorts of idols than the carved statues that we sometimes think of. There are idols that are called Jesus and are worshipped in church. And I'm not talking about the, the, the pictures of Jesus that you sometimes see in churches. I'm talking about the pictures of Jesus that you see in our minds. You see, the Jesus I believe in may not be the real Jesus of the Bible. And throughout the letter, John has been fighting against false views about Jesus and encouraging hope and trust in the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. He's saying you can have assurance if you trust in in the real Jesus. The letter was written, as we said, after a, a chunk of the church upped and left with new ideas about how to worship God, new ideas about who Jesus really was and what he really said. And they're excited and passionate about their their spiritual dynamism and they're thrilled with all that they're learning. But John says they're dealing with a fake Jesus. And so John says there is no hope for them. There is no assurance for them. Because fake Jesus cannot save you. And I guess that in a room like this, most of us would nod and agree. Mm. Most of us would say we don't want to deal with a fake Jesus. Most of us would not say, uh, I reject certain bits of the Bible um, because the Jesus I believe in would never say something like that. You know, we can see that is making up your own Jesus. Most of us would never say something as crass as, I believe Jesus just wants me to be happy and I can ignore any bit of the Bible that contradicts that. You know, we can see through that sort of nonsense. We can see that that's just creating an idol of Jesus. But the truth is that all of us, you and me, we all face the temptation to trade in the real Jesus of the Bible for a slightly less demanding version. Usually we've just learned to do so in a more subtle way. It starts, as always, with things I really want. Things I don't think I can live without. A certain standard of living, career, relationships. Not being mocked, laughed at by a certain group of people. And when the real Jesus says things that challenge those cherished desires, well, I don't reject what he says, because I know I shouldn't do that, but I do find ways of watering it down. So when Jesus says hard things, exclusive things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. When he speaks about marriage and sex in ways which we know if we stand up for will make us awfully unpopular. We, we find subtle ways. Well, there do seem to be a variety of views on that. You know, they, you know I, I've, I've heard church leaders say you know, different things on these things. The Bible is clear, but but we grasp at, yeah, other people don't seem to be so clear. And so I, you know, I'm not saying I reject, but maybe I shouldn't just be quite so strong on it. I reject real Jesus. And instead I prefer an idol who doesn't say that awkward thing. 
Or there's the do as they do rather than do as he says version. Uh, We decide, how much do I have to obey Jesus when he says things that um, are difficult by looking around at the people next to you tonight? Jesus says he should come before career ambition. So Jesus uh, says in, in Mark 8, whoever wants to follow me must deny himself and take up his cross and come after me. But I see other people in the church who are quite happy to miss small group in church regularly for work and who keep quiet about their faith so as not to jeopardize their walk up the career ladder. And if others around here who are Christians do it, it must be okay. And so I, I reject the Jesus who said, whoever wants to follow me must deny himself. And instead I, I prefer an idol who... Well, he might have said those things, but he clearly doesn't really mean them because I'll just look at what other people are doing. Or there's the, ah, but this is different. So I hear Jesus say something that, well, he says no, but I want to do it. Or I hear him require me to do something I really don't want to do. Telling others in my office or my flat about Jesus or giving sacrificially in a way which is going to mean my standard of living falls beneath that of my non-Christian friends. Submitting to what he says when it comes to relationships. His word is clear. But I have this way of saying, yeah, I know that, but it is, look, this is a little bit different. My life is complicated. Things aren't quite that straightforward. It's easy to make things black and white, but, but actually there is just, it's just not quite that straightforward for me. It doesn't feel when we do those things like we're rejecting Jesus and worshipping an idol, but But in each case, what we're doing is finding a way of not obeying what Jesus says. Of not worshipping who Jesus is and instead turning to something different. Fake Jesus will always involve softening the edges and lowering the costs. A Jesus I'm more comfortable with will always be the end result. But fake Jesus won't save you. Fake Jesus can't save you. No amount of faith in fake Jesus can turn a backpack into a parachute. See, the great problem is that my sins are real, and so are yours, and so is God's coming judgment. And the only possible way to be saved and to enjoy eternal, enjoy eternal pleasure with God forever in his remade kingdom. The only way to be saved is to trust in the real Jesus. The Jesus of history. The Jesus of the Bible who died on a cross for our sins. The Jesus who also says an awful lot of awkward things. Know this. You lack nothing eternally if you have that Jesus. But if we turn away from him, we have nothing. So keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful letter of 1 John. We thank you for his, uh, his reason for writing that we don't have to live in fear and doubt. We can have certainty that if we believe in the name of the Son of God, we have 
eternal life. We have perfect access to you in prayer. We have forgiveness for sins. And we have the promise that you will hold us fast and bring us home. Father, we're all tempted in different ways to to avoid some of the things Jesus says, to make a different Jesus. We pray that we would not give in to that temptation. And that instead, we would worship and trust and follow and obey the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who saved us, and the Jesus who one day will bring us home. Amen.